Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So this is the twelfth and concluding class of our 2021 Truth of Happiness Dhamma study. Um, on Tuesday, we're going to begin uh, the 32-class structured study of Vipassana, or introspective insight into the three marks of existence, the, the key uh, central theme of the Buddha's Dhamma. Um, many of you uh, remember that from last year. Um, and also, our, uh, our the retreat reservations are open. I'm going to send a formal announcement out early this week. Uh, but you can sign up whenever, whenever you can. All the info is on the website. And uh, I did finish the, uh, the retreat book. So you can uh, review the suttas we'll be, uh, I'll be teaching uh, on that weekend too. Um, this, uh, this fire discourse, again, is one of the most inspiring and significant uh, teachings the Buddha ever gave. Uh, it's one that we, for the first, I don't know, six, seven, eight retreats, we always did it on Saturday night, uh, partly because of its, uh, its inspiring and dramatic nature. Uh, we've gotten into other themes uh, in some of our recent retreats. In fact, the theme of this uh, spring's retreat are the foundations of the Buddhist Dhamma. And uh, the, uh, the suttas that uh, we'll be using, I'm really, uh, I'm looking forward to that uh, and the way they come together. So the fire discourse. Uh, these are my words first. The Buddha presented his first two discourses to the ascetics he had previously befriended. These were, were five of his friends. Uh, the first discourse on the Four Noble Truths, that's the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta, explained the cause of all delusion in the world and the path to understanding. Uh, the second discourse, uh, most of you have heard it, the Anatalakana Sutta, or the teaching on the not-self characteristic, was the second discourse. And these, those two and this one that we're, I'm going to teach today are considered the cardinal discourses of the Buddha. Um, even in traditions that don't really follow what the Buddha taught, these are still considered the cardinal discourses, and, and certainly in a Theravada tradition, uh, these are considered the cardinal discourses, even though they, uh, they've been modified and uh, a lot of mysticism has been attached to them. Uh, what you'll be hearing today is, is uh, as close as we know that the Buddha actually taught. Um, it, that second discourse, the Anatalakana uh, discourse, explained how the perception of individuality arises and what forms the belief in self, or a fabricated belief in self. Um, and about, about one month after the Buddha's first two discourses, he presented the fire discourse uh, to approximately a thousand followers. So that's, that's rather remarkable. The Buddha started uh, with these five uh, friends that he was wandering around northern India, all seeking understanding. Um, I don't know if you remember the story where the, the Buddha became disenchanted with their life, uh, their ascetic life, and left those five friends. And, um, and the, the story is that he was walking down the road one day, uh, completely emaciated and weak um, from his ascetic practices. It was said that he was living on a, a grain of rice a day, or one bean, and he became so emaciated. Uh, the, the stories, and perhaps they're a fable, but um, they do tell uh, the extent to what the Buddha went through. It, it, it is said that he could feel his, his spine through touching his belly. He was, he was that thin. Anyway, he was walking down the street and he passed out and rolled into a, a river on the side of the road. And a, a young girl, t uh, 12 years old, Sujata, dragged him out of the river and saved his life and, and uh, re restored his health by feeding him uh, you know, some gruel, uh, uh, watered down rice. Uh, and as the Buddha recovered from that ascetic practice, that was his final lesson in understanding that self-denial and those types of ascetic practices are, and the words that he used are painful and ignoble and don't lead to, the, um, to awakening. And, and that's why the Buddha abandoned asceticism in all types, um, even though today many of the modern Buddhist practices still are enamored with certain forms of asceticism, uh, particularly the asceticism of forced silence. Um, 
most modern Buddhist retreats are silent retreats, but that's not something the Buddha ever taught. Uh, noble silence can only be informed by right speech, meaning that you have to be engaged in right speech to know when noble silence is, um, is to be practiced. And we exemplify that and, and practice that on our retreats. In other words, the focus isn't on, in fact, there's no such thing as forced silence on our retreats, um, but we do encourage right speech, meaning that on our retreats, you engage in, in speech that is related to the Dhamma and you abandon uh, wrong speech and idle chatter. Uh, and so that, that's, that's how we develop noble silence and understand what it is. So the Buddha explained this to approximately a thousand followers. So in one month, the word had spread about the Buddhist Dhamma and now he had a, a, a large uh, uh, original Sangha. Upon hearing this short discourse, most of those in attendance awakened. And another remarkable thing, but I've noticed that um, the individual students in, that have been part of our Sangha that heard this, this particular sutta, uh, and it really was their inspiration towards understanding what the Buddha actually taught. And I think some of you that have been on retreat and heard that, you, you, you know what I'm talking about. So at that time in northern India, in southern Nepal, there were various cults who engaged in ritualistic worship. One of these cults was a popular fire cult devoted to rituals using fire. The Buddha used the fire worshippers as an analogy to how individual personalities worship um, what contacts their senses. The fire discourse presented here is a brief but insightful look at how the at the how the physical and sen- physical senses sorry interpreted by the intellect meaning ongoing the the the, the six um, how do I explain this? The, it's, the, the intellect here I'm referring to, the consciousness rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. It's ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. It's not some grand type of consciousness. So the senses interpreted by that intellect reinforce the belief in self. The Buddha was staying in Gaia at Gaia Head with, those, with about a thousand monks, and there he addressed those monks. Monks, the all is a flame. What all is a flame? The eye is a flame. Forms are a flame. Consciousness at the eye is a flame. The Buddha often referred to the five physical senses and the sixth sense of consciousness as having their own type of interpretive individual consciousness. In other words, there was eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose consciousness. And when you think about, to us it sounds a little bit weird because uh, we use our consciousness in a more generic way and not well focus on what's occurring. But as something is coming in contact with the eye, a beautiful sunset or a smiling baby, we're interpreting that through the visual response impacting our consciousness. And if that consciousness is rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths, even our interpretation of a beautiful sunset or a baby's smile is going to be clouded and altered by that aspect of ignorance. In other words, we might grasp after another wonderful sunset, or another smile from the baby, um, or anything else that's giving us pleasure. And of course, the, the other side of that coin is things that we find uh, distasteful or unpleasant will create an aversion to that. The Buddha continues, consciousness, consciousness at the eye is a flame, contact at the eye is a flame, and whatever there is that arises in dependence on contact at the eye, that's, an, that's a reference to clinging, experience as pleasure, Pain or neither pleasure nor pain. Uh, that last might need a little bit of explanation. That's just an ambiguous way of living in the world where we have so disen- disengaged ourselves in an unskillful way that everything seems ambiguous. And that's, that's a very common trait in modern Buddhism and in modern spiritual practice. They think it, it, it's, an, it's an aspect of grasping after the notion of nothingness or emptiness, an unskillful way of doing that. Experience as pleasure, pain, or neither pleasure nor pain, that too is a flame. That too is a flame. In engaging in, in, in interpreting things through our senses that bring pleasure, pain, or ambiguity, or boredom, that is an aspect of being inflamed with these passions of self-centeredness. A flame with what? A flame with the fire of passion, the fire of aversion, and the fire of delusion. That's the three the three defilements the Buddha is referencing here. 
The Buddha continues, I, A flame I tell you with birth, aging, and death, with sorrow, regrets, pain, distress, and despair. That's how the Buddha describes dukkha. He always describes dukkha in those terms. What is dukkha? Birth is dukkha. Sickness is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Death is dukkha. Not getting what is desired is dukkha. Getting what is or receiving what is undesired is dukkha. And he would always conclude that description of dukkha or, or stress and suffering as saying, in short, the five clinging aggregates are dukkha. The, we know the five clinging aggregates are simply the Buddha's description of the ongoing personal experience of ignorance creating dukkha. Ignorance of who we are in relation to the world we, are, we live in, known as the three marks of existence that we'll get into next week. The Buddha continues, The ear is a flame, sounds are a flame. The nose is a flame, aromas are a flame. The tongue is a flame, flavors are a flame. The body is a flame, tactile sensations are a flame. The intellect is a flame, ideas are a flame. Consciousness at the intellect is a flame. What's the Buddha referring to here? He's referring to, again, as everything is coming through our senses and we're interpreting that through a mind rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths or the ignorance of what is actually occurring in a selfless, dispassionate way, all of this contact, con- contact continues to aflame our passions. And again, related to that fire code, what are we doing? We're literally burning ourselves out of existence because of that flame. And we're encouraged to continue to do it by our own conditioned thinking. Contact at the intellect is a flame. And whatever there is that arises independence on contact at the intellect, experience as pleasure, pain, or neither pleasure nor pain, that too is a flame. A flame with what? A flame with the fire of passion, the fire of aversion, and the fire of delusion. Again, the fire of the three defilements, greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. The Buddha continues, A flame, I say, with birth, aging, and death, with sorrow, regrets, pain, distress, and despairs. Seeing this, the well-instructed disciple of the noble ones grows disenchanted with the eye, disenchanted with forms, disenchanted with consciousness at the eye, disenchanted with contact at the eye. And whatever there is that arises in dependence on contact at the eye, experience as pleasure, pain, or neither pleasure or pain, with that they too grow disenchanted. That's such a perfect word, of course, excuse me. The word disenchanted is is a translation from the Pali, and I can't remember what the word is right now. But disenchanted fits what we're doing to ourselves. We are enchanting ourselves, or another word for that, and it relates to hypnotizing ourselves. Enchantment relates to, to a kind of an archaic term called mesmerizing. And I think you've all, all heard about that. We are literally mesmerizing ourselves with our own desires and our own passions. We become, we become our own enchanters. And if we think about that word, that word enchanting means that we're creating some kind of an imaginary, mystical or magical experience. And we're doing it to ourselves. And once we have enchanted ourselves, enchantment implies also a, a profound connection or clinging to what we're enchanted by. And what are we enchanting ourselves with? Our fabrications, our misinterpretations of who we are in relation to the world. And of course, that can only lead to stress and suffering. So the, the antidote antidote to self-enchantment is self-disenchantment. That's what the Buddha is referring to. That's what this discourse is referring to. And that's what the Buddha's Dhamma is all about. Becoming disenchanted, dispassionate about our own fabricated views of ourself in relation to the world. And so developing right view or a realistic view, an authentic view of life as life unfolds. The Buddha continues, They grow disenchanted with the ear, They grow disenchanted with the nose. They grow disenchanted with the tongue. They grow disenchanted with the body. They grow disenchanted with the intellect. Disenchanted with ideas. Disenchanted with consciousness at the intellect. And disenchanted with contact at the intellect. This last gets to the heart of the matter. Because ultimately, it's our clinging to our own fabricated thinking. Thought by thought by thought. That keeps us in ignorance. And so ultimately, the the Buddha's Dhamma is resolved by getting disenchanted with our own way or method of thinking. 
And every time in jhana meditation is the perfect, I often say it this way, jhana meditation is, is both the perfect metaphor for awakening and at the same time the practical experience of awakening. Because that simple act of recognizing that we're caught up in our thoughts and our feelings again and coming back to the sensation interrupts that process of ongoing enchantment. And so during jhana practice, we are disenchanting ourselves or, dis- or mesmerizing ourselves every time we take a breath and come back in the body. And as we take that ever-deepening concentration off our cushion and into our moment-by-moment life and are now able to practice wise restraint coupled with refined mindfulness, in life as life occurs, we are continuing that deprogramming or mesmerizing process within ourselves. And so that's how jhana meditation relates to the other seven factors of the Eightfold Path because it requires a deep and profound level of concentration to now practice this process off our cushion. They go disenchanted with consciousness at the intellect and disenchanted with contact at the intellect. And whatever there is that arises in dependence on, on, on dependence and contact at the intellect, experience as pleasure, pain, or neither pleasure nor pain, they grow disenchanted with that too. Um, what is it that arises in dependence on contact with the intellect? It relates directly to dependent origination. What it is that is dependent on contact at the intellect in a mind rooted in ignorance is, is the constant process of as as the Buddha teaches us in dependent origination, from ignorance of four noble truths as a requisite condition comes fabrication, and from those fabrications comes consciousness. That's the the first two links in dependent origination. So, what do we learn by that simple teaching? That it's fabrications rooted in ignorance that are feeding our consciousness, or the ongoing thinking and clinging to that aspect of intellect that is recognized and abandoned through authentic Dhamma practice. Whatever there is that arises in dependence at the intellect, experience as pleasure, pain, or neither pleasure nor pain, they grow disenchanted with that too. Disenchanted, they become dispassionate. This is an internal, self-developed process, isn't it? Nobody can do this for you. Your teacher can't do it. The Buddha can't do it from 2,600 years ago. There's no magical or mystical way of developing this dispassionate. We can't become dispassionate by trying to establish ourselves in some future speculative non-physical realm. We can only become disenchanted right here, right now, in this present moment. We cannot become disenchanted by trying to manipulate the past, and we certainly cannot become disenchanted at some point in the future, even if we think it's the next moment. And the reason why I'm putting this emphasis right here and right now is that reflects on our Dhamma practice. There is no Dhamma in the past and there certainly isn't in the future. There is only Dhamma right here and right now. And that's rooted in jhana meditation. It is right here, right now that we awaken. Not at some point in the future. Not even in the next moment, excuse me. That might seem a little hard to understand and it might seem like it's negating the process of, of engaging in the Dhamma. But it's important to not look at the Dhamma as a, as a series of events that leads to a goal, although it does. Dhamma practice should o- only be seen as something I can practice right here, right now with a refined mindfulness rooted in jhana that allows me to be in this present moment. Because that's the only... Being mindful, having a mind united in its body, in life as life unfolds, brings the ability to awaken. And it's the only time that we can awaken, right here and right now. Dispassionate, they are fully released. Released from what? Released from all views rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. That's the whole focus of the Buddha's Dhamma. It's the only thing that he was concerned about. It's the only thing we should be concerned about. With full release... There is the knowledge, I am fully released. That means we know it. We know it ourselves. We're having the personal experience. You don't need a teacher or some vague interpretation of what awakening means. We know it. And if you don't know it, it simply means you need, you need a little bit more Dhamma practice. They understand 
that birth is ended. What does the Buddha mean by birth is ended? He's not talking about, um, and some traditions teach that when you awaken, poof, you just vanish from human existence. Of course, all you have to do is look at the Buddha's life and know that that's, that's nonsense. The Buddha awakened and lived 45 more years, the most successful human life anybody's ever lived. What fully released means, what, what birth is ended, meaning that there's nothing left within me, and this is how the Buddha described his, his own awakening, is that there's nothing left within me that would provoke another moment or give birth to another moment rooted in ignorance. And that's the most important teaching on rebirth as well. And you, you heard me talk about this uh, in the class on karma and rebirth. The Buddha wasn't concerned about future births or how we got here in this physical realm. He was concerned about eliminating the possibility of giving birth to another moment giving, rooted in ignorance. He discerns that birth has ended, the holy or the, in, the life integrated with the Eightfold Path has been fulfilled, the task is now done. There is nothing further for this world. Again, what does the Buddha mean? There's nothing further. It means that there's nothing further for a fabricated self for this world. And now this human being can live in common peace rooted in understanding of what's occurring in this present moment. The conclusion is, this is what the Buddha said and, those, and gratified. The monks were delighted at his words. And when, with this explanation, while this explanation was, given, given, was being given, the hearts of the thousand monks, through not clinging, meaning not being sustained to clinging, were fully released from their fermentations and their defilements. That's the end of the sutta. Thank you for listening. Uh, so I find this one of the most inspiring, because uh, <laughs> like I said before, significant teachings. I hope you did the same, and I did a, I did a fair job of presenting it uh, as, I, as I believe the Buddha did. So we'll go, go around. I'd like to hear what you have to say. Um, and maybe if you could also comment on uh, how the Truth of Happiness Dhamma study, uh, what it did for you and what it meant to you. Uh, this time around, too. I'm going to start with uh, Michael up in the top left of my screen. How are you, Michael? Hi, John. Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, just, just quickly. Um, I really didn't have don't have so much prepared, but um, just putting an end to uh, another moment of ignorance. Uh, obviously, uh, something to uh, to be. To be aware of, uh, and I, I do believe this uh, whole course is is just that, uh, uh, you know, a journey to self awareness, and and then developing right view from there. So, I, I find this um, uh, the truth of happiness just basically, uh, you know, covered so many basic, so many, uh, you know, important topics or all the concepts and and place you you place them in a. a in, in a uh, in a way that they, they flow so nicely together, John gives a full understanding. So it really kind of like uh, tied together a lot of loose ends for me, and as it did uh, uh, the first time we had read it. So I I I enjoyed this my second time taking you know this this course, and I enjoyed it very much. And I think it's a it's a great it's a great book to uh, get someone started and in the right direction. Mm. So thank you for it and. Uh, that's all I got today. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. Good morning, Julia. Good morning, John. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> um, from this sutta, what, what I got was that, um, you know, at point of contact, uh, there's nothing that could affect us if not for the, the mind, the fabrications done by the mind. Um, it's because of this, uh, the conditioning of the, the person's mind, the mind rooted in ignorance that, we, we, are, we are flamed again yep. to perpetuate another moment of ignorance. Um, so, I, I mean, I do like the sutta a lot. It's, it's, it's very informative. It's, you know, it, it helps us to understand how we interact with phenomena yeah. and how we make it become part of ourselves. Right. Uh, I, I like this, uh, this, this, whole, this whole course doing it again the second time for me because this is my second time. Um, it just strengthens all the things that I've learned. And actually, in this time, I could see actually the connections between a lot of the suttas that we've read, a lot of the yeah. other, the other uh, aspects of, of the whole Dhamma and, and um, 
you know, it's, it's just, it's fascinating to me because I, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, wow, yeah. I can see that this relates to this and this is that. And so I can see all the pieces going together. And so <laughs> this time it's kind of like, now it's like forming within me and, uh, you know, I can, I can put it more to practice in my daily life. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you, John, for, for this course. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. And you, you bring up such an important point. And I think it's Dhammapada 16 or 18 where the Buddha says, where there's no repetition, there's no Dhamma. So even back then he was teaching that. We go over basically the same teachings over and over again. But they're so deep and profound that the second, fourth, and I, you know, I've talked to people who have gone through the truth of happiness eight times. And every time there's people here, uh, maybe they can talk about that. Uh, Every time you go through it, you see something else and you make a deeper and more um, profound connection between all of the Buddha's Dhamma. Uh, and why is that? It's because a, a human mind is, and the, the Buddha discovered this, it's remarkably supple when it's free, when, it, when it's rooted in understanding. And it has the ability to understand something that we have, that human beings have been trying to understand forever but looking where they it can't be found there's a sutta that talks about that is noble searching and ignoble searching the buddha points our mind to where understanding can actually be found and understanding or developing full human maturity is a deep and profound experience and it's really what every human being truly desires the moment they're born unfortunately there's not a lot out there to point us in the right direction except these these four noble truths and every time we look at it, we find something else. I've been doing this a long time, and I'm fortunate that I get to teach it uh, at three classes a week now. Um, and I still see things uh, that are that that just just astonish me in bringing me understanding of who I am and and what's what's occurring in the world. And it's it's just that way. So I'll stop giving speeches and <laughs> and move on to Ram. Ram, how are you this morning? I'm good. Um, hmm. Yeah. Uh, I want to echo um, Mike. And, and uh, you know, this is my fifth or sixth time. Um, and this is really the second time that I've, that I've recognized um how useful this book is, how useful this course is. Um, and I have to say it, you know, uh, I don't want to log too much, uh, heap too much stuff on your head, but this is really well written. And it, it really covers <laughs> everything very well. Thank um, you. And, and again, I, I, I still find things that um, I haven't seen before. Uh, this whole year, I've been uh, kind of thinking and, and mulling about how the, the virtuous factors um, are like a check yeah. on on our um, on our dharma and our practice, yeah. and uh, then you know I'm I'm reading through the book and. There you are. You, you've already like laid it out in detail, uh, and I never saw it. Yeah. So, um, thank you for for putting this book together and, and, and you know and the revisions and all that and, and going over it every year. Uh, it is really the most helpful thing you can you can have for not just the beginning practice but a, an established practice. Yeah. And, and to go over the, the, the fire discourse and, and the, the the cardinal discourses, anyhow, anytime you do that, um, you're just I'm just um, floored by the revolution that the human revolution that the Buddha set off. Yeah, uh, you know he just broke down everything that we thought we knew about our, our existence and, yeah. and, and 
set us on, on the path to, to being truly free humans. Yeah. That's all I have for today. Thank you. Uh, and, you know, it, it, you heard me give a lot of different appellations to the Buddha, all, all positive. But, you know, one of the things that I think it's often missed is how incredibly courageous this man was. Because what he was teaching contradicted every single strongly held belief of his time. Um, but the, the truth was so important to him, uh, and, and that's what gave him the courage to, to say these things. But he was also, at the same time that, that uh, he was gaining a thousand followers a month, there were thousands of people that were, that were saying, you know, this guy's a heretic and all this, this stuff. But he just kept doing it. He just stayed in that peaceful understanding of this is the truth. And, it, and it's, it, the other thing that's remarkable, you got to look for it a little bit, but it's still here today, isn't it? Thanks, Rom. Uh, I want to, Mary said that she might have to leave early, so I want to go to Mary next. Mary, how are you? Hi, John. Um, thanks for calling on me. Um, I am one of those people deeply moved and forever shifted by, uh, by this, and um, I'm reminded of that when I hear it again. I have been through the course many times, but the Dhamma meets you where you are, and you're never in the same place as you were a year ago when you took the course. So to think that it's just repetition would be missing the point. Um, It means you where you are. And today, I mean, always the word dispassion is an awakening word to me because we're conditioned to think that our our passion, our, you know, our drama, our deep depth of feeling, you know, is such an important part of who I am, right? Thank you, Mary. That 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 was wonderful. What you just said. You you explained the immediacy of the Dhamma much better than I ever have. So thank you. And I, I was reminded that many years ago, didn't we do a, a a Saturday retreat with you and your sisters on the truth of happiness? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All five, all my, me and my four sisters. Yep, yep, yep. You did a, you did a half day retreat for us. Yeah, I still remember that. It was wonderful. Yep. That's, that's where we met you. <laughs> yeah. Well. Thank you for joining this morning, and uh, good luck with your tire. <laughs> Thank you. Tim, how are you this morning? Good. How's everybody? This is, um, this is truly one of the, uh, one of the foundational sutras. Yep. Right? Understanding this sutra is understanding the Dhamma. Um, I'd like to just ask John or just comment on what I... How I how I interpreted in the context of what the Buddha was saying mm-hmm. at the at the final discourse that consciousness interacts with the sixth sense space through contact. Yeah. Um, the contact through the self-referential lens results in feeling, and then that results into craving, clinging, and suffering. Yes, and it's at that contact that the, that that contact at that that the self awareness of that contact that feeling can we can abandon yeah. that feeling, thus ending craving. Yep. So, and then the Buddha explains that. Well, how do you do this? Well, by being disenchanted with that sixth sense base, and through, and then through that disenchantment. Become dispassionate, dispassionate of the feeling.
healing. Yes. <laughs> so if you think about it, and I think you mentioned this too before, John, in in this in your explanation and also in the Buddha's words, that we have the nose and then we have the smell. And so that's like an internal and external sense. Yep. Right? It's the internal and the external. And that external isn't permanent. It's, it's not sustained. And so by, when the Buddha's explaining that, well, it's, we're giving it life. Mm-hmm. And the smell is there. We're giving it birth, yes. We're giving it, we're giving it sustenance. And so yep. um, that's where, again, it's, what's wonderful about this, and I see it here, is that, again, Buddha's incorporating that the three marks here. Because we have the consciousness, the self-referential anatta, Interacting with an impermanent anicca, resulting in dukkha. Yep. And it's just a wonderful explanation, and it gives you hope that at that point of contact, for me, when I look at my, when I look at any event, any type of interaction I have with the impermanent world, at that point of contact, I have that awareness. Okay. There's a smell. It's what it is. Abandon. Move on. Yep. Accept it. It is what it is. And it's at that point that we become, we can become liberated. And which is what yes. we ultimately taught, right? Yep. Liberation from Dukkha. So, and in regards to the truth of happiness, this is my third, third time. Um, it's so wonderful you put this last because really the truth of happiness all culminates into the fire discourse. Yes. It's great that you see that. And so, I really, uh, it's a, it was a wonderful, and through the interaction of everybody in the Sangha and everybody's insight and wisdom, uh, really uh, uh, was helpful to me this time around. Yeah. You would, uh, where I can't explain, so I'm very thankful and grateful uh, for everything. Yeah. Thank you for, for what you just said, Tim. It, it's well said. Uh, it shows a profound development of the Buddha's Dhamma, and you you point to, again, the, the key theme of the Dhamma, it relates to the four foundations of mindfulness. Um, a mind rooted in ignorance of four noble truths creates feelings rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. And that mind uses what it feels to reaffirm its own ignorance. And it's another way of describing the, the, the feedback loop that the Buddha described in the Nagara Sutta and how he realized that, recognized that. He saw it within himself, and that allowed him to disentangle himself and, and develop his dispassionate way of living in the world. Thank you, Tim. Uh, David, how are you this morning? Good, John. The repetition, and I, I read this before I had any interest in joining or being interested it was always around, the book was always around because of Mary. <laughs> so, uh, the repetition I find, and along with all the suttas and the teachings, your your understanding becomes more nuanced. Yeah. So, at first, you just want to understand, and you're frustrated, and then you catch on to a concept, and then you think about something two weeks later. And that's how it builds, because I, I think the whole practice is preparing you for the rubber meets the road yeah. things that you have to address at some point. You know, this body is a clay pot, so therefore, how can I cling to my child or my wealth? And those are the truly important, difficult things that you have to be dispassionate about. And I don't know how many mothers of the world can be dispassionate about their children or a wealthy man who sees himself as important because of his wealth. So the repetition and the feedback, as Tim just said, of the Sangha, it's all, you know, a thousand people don't awaken just out of the blue. They had a bit of dust and, you know, this practice is what it's addressing. So, uh, again, I've always enjoyed this class and I look forward to the next time. So, thank you. Uh, Thank you, David. Um, I said that I was going to start the Vipassana Structured Study on Tuesday, but uh, there's three suttas related to something you just said, and I think I might teach 
one of them before. It, it, it has to do with the, the Buddha teaching King Pasanadi. I talked to Ram about this, um, uh, about how what he holds dear, including his children, because of the way he looks at that, creates the stress and suffering in his life. So um, I'll put it in the, in the newsletter. It's going to go out Sunday, which class we'll be teaching. But I might teach that one uh, on Tuesday because of what you just said. So <laughs> we'll see. Uh, Kevin, how are you, Dr. Kevin? I'm good, John. Thank you. Uh, hello, everyone, too. And um, gosh, it's hard to follow on what people are saying. It's just the same thoughts that I have because we've been through this together many times. And the repetition is what we need. Um, it is that cycle. It's interesting. Mary's getting her tires done today. It's the wheel of the Dhamma. Yeah. <laughs> David said where the rubber meets the road. It's yeah. all this cycle that um, bears repeating, and it is a cycle. This um, the, And the discourse is, is fantastic, too. Really, it is. It, to me, I was thinking it's a teaching of what dependent origination is in action. Yeah. Um, the Buddha has described the steps in the cha- of the chain or the links of the chain, but this is what happens to and can happen to everyone. It's happening to us. To the not self gets so enamored of all these feelings from contact and is aflame and is like self-immolating and is burning, but at the same time is wrapped up in this chain that it's like masochism. It's like oh, yeah. I'm okay with this. We're just going to burn alive here. Yep. But then it teaches how to how to break that chain too and how to become dispassionate and how to re- achieve release. So it's really it is really the culmination of the teaching of this whole book, the truth of happiness and, and of the Dhamma itself. Yeah. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah, the the Buddha never described a condition or an aspect of conditioned mind without providing the, the resolution for that too. So or it would be cruel to do Otherwise, wouldn't it, to, to say, well, you're all sinners, you know, you're all going to burn in hell and turn his back. He said, you know, you, you made these mistakes in your thinking, and here's how you correct it. And that's quite different than any other thing that's ever been presented in that way. So thank you, Kevin. Steve, how are you out there in Ohio? Hi, Steve. Hi, Steve. Yeah, thanks say just thank you John it was a very interesting uh, course a lot uh, mind heart eye openers and kind of like everything starting tied together what Buddha uh, was teaching about uh, how is everything uh, interconnected it was very interesting thank you very much I from starting this course it's very impressive it's made uh, Sense about. Yeah. Also, I have some question. Uh, when are you gonna move to Vipassana uh, class? Uh, is it gonna be some uh, reading material provided, or how is it gonna be? Oh yeah, the uh, and again, I'll put it in in uh, tomorrow's email if we're going to start Tuesday or Saturday. But the entire Vipassana course is is already on the website. Uh, the talks from last year's uh, structured study is there as well. Um, send me an email when we're done with class and I'll send you the link but it's also linked in the um, on the front page under the foundations of the Buddha's Dhamma it's a little bit down the page and you can find it there but send me an email and I'll send you the link but it'll also be in the in the uh, newsletter that goes out too so. thank you, thank you Steve I'm glad you joined us Mateo good to see you hi everybody hi and so for me, I, I did this course last year uh, via email. Yeah. And then I joined, I joined, I think, all through this class uh, live. And, and of course, like, I enjoy it. And I think, like, it's really beneficial to join the Sangha because you can hear also, like, different opinion and, and, and point of view. So that helped me to clarify my mind and about everything. And what, what, what I think with, with me from this... Uh, from this course is like uh, two two main concepts. Like one, uh, I think, like a couple of weeks ago when you explained about again about the emptiness, it was something that was struggled for more than ten years to really understand what Siddhartha say about emptiness. And then like I was like 
when I read your book and then you clarify a couple of weeks ago, it was like, wow, I got it. I yeah, good. It was like one sentence. And also another one, when you explain the concept about uh, uh, most of us, that you know, we accept stuff only if we approve stuff. Even that was like blowing my mind literally. It was like, oh, wow. It's, it make a difference in really make a difference once I, I heard that from you like in, in my life that's very good uh-huh. and uh, about, about the, the sutra today one thing is like I really like that Siddhartha used the, the metaphor of fire to explain to these people that it's like it's kind of like uh, almost ironic uh, like that and other like it's more like a like question maybe curiosity I guess this uh, sutra is related to Sparsa so the, the six point on dependent origination, am I right? Yeah, but you could also say that about every sutta the Buddha ever teaches. They all relate and are founded in his understanding of dependent origination or the origination of stress and suffering. Hmm. Okay. Hey, one more thing, like I'm just curious, because I know that like, uh, it's, it's, we only talk about the six senses in, uh, and in your opinion, I don't know if it's relevant, this, why... To, to oversimplify, why in the Western society we refer only to five senses, but in a lot of like the Eastern... Ah, because it's, it's such an important question, Matteo. I'm sorry, I'm interrupting you. No, sorry, because I, I'm, I'm, I try to study and read a lot, but I don't have a clear idea why we decide to add that and why we don't decide. I'm, I'm so glad you asked the question. I am, if I could still jump up, <laughs> I would. It's because we're so enamored with our thinking that we don't even see it, that, that that's just another one of our senses. It, we, we, we've made our, we've elevated the simple process of thinking to something that, that governs all. And again, that's a little bit, um, that can be a little bit confusing, but a mind rooted in ignorance has, has a consciousness that is rooted in that ignorance. And so we don't even see it. Um, one of the things that the Buddha considered just post his awakening is, how do I teach this? How can I teach people whose minds are rooted in ignorance that they're ignorant? Because a mind that is rooted in ignorance, the primary component of that mind, is a, moan, is a mind that's prone to continue its own ignorance. It's included in the, in the word itself, in the description. A mind rooted in ignorance is compelled to continue to ignore its own ignorance. And so we don't want to, we don't want to see that sixth sense as something that is akin to what I'm seeing, what I'm smelling, what I'm hearing, what I'm touching. We, we're so enamored with our thinking that we, we don't understand it's our own process. And I, I hope that that explanation helps you. And you touched on something else. It's, it's, it's an aspect of developing the Dhamma that we're able to separate the need for approving something before we can accept it, as opposed to accepting what's occurring simply because it's what's occurring. That's, a def- that's the difference between an immature mind and a fully mature mind. You know, so thank you, Matteo, for joining us today. Becky, good morning. everyone good morning john thank you for this teaching um yeah i think this is my third time through the truth of happiness and this time was uh so good because i could see the organization of the book and i could understand the reason for the repetition um I could really get the concept of the whole package. Mm. And I think it's so important to keep doing this. Yeah. Because like Mary said, you see different things every time. And this time, this time through sort of came together with with my ability to have the Dhamma with me more during my time off the cushion than I've ever been able to do that in the past. So I could see myself, I could see myself throughout the day 
catching myself and making myself calmer because I caught myself and making my day so much nicer because I caught myself. And that is just huge. Is it? That's just huge for me. <coughs> Excuse me. I did write something uh, very briefly <coughs> that I, I would like to read. Please. <clears throat> Dispassion at contact is disenchantment with all sensory phenomenon. Mm. It is ceasing to grasp. It is ceasing to take personally. It is ceasing to maintain. It is letting go to become released from the clutches of the world. <laughs> it is being present without self. Yeah, that's, that is, that's outstanding, Becky. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Beautiful. It really is. Uh, Adam, how are you? I'm good, John. Nice to see you. Nice to see everybody here. Nice to be back. I'm sorry I missed all of you all last weekend. Uh, so this is my first time through this course. Um, uh, in fact, it's my first time through any of this. Um, my first time being part of a sangha as well. And I find myself, you know, still kind of getting my sea legs, both in the context of the sangha and and the, uh, the Dhamma's study course, as well as you know, in my in my personal practice. And uh, you know, the experience so far has just been so nourishing um and uh, liberating to a certain extent you know i'm just beginning to realize the you know the the, the depth of the quagmire um but uh um i forgot what it was but anyway um i'm lo- you know, looking forward to be able to say a few years you know from now hey, it's my fourth time through like you guys but i'll i'll uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll meet the donna there when I, when i when i get there um I just wanted to sort of make one comment that kind of one thing I picked up on uh, your uh, discussion, John, and the idea of enchanting oneself and mesmerizing oneself and how that's undone in the instant that you come back to your breath during John meditation. Um, that's, that's, that's been my experience this entire time since I started being part of the Sangha back last, last July, I think. Um, that moment is, uh, it's, it's just wonderful, and it's something that you can carry with you the rest yep. of the day, just yep. like Becky said. Yep. And what Becky said really resonated with me about how you know you remember. Oh yeah, this is something I, I can let go of that of that grasp at the point of contact, and uh, take it with you for, for the rest of your day. Um, and uh, that's something I'm going to keep with me, you know, as I as I walk around, as I do all the work I got to today, stuff like that. So. Thank you, John. Thank you all, everyone in this in this sangha, for making such an amazing experience for me. Um, and uh, I miss you every time I'm, I'm not around. <laughs> Thank you, Adam. Yet yeah, this this sangha really is remarkable, and you're a part of it. You know, you're 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 a significant part, as significant as everyone else. Um, we all began somewhere. You know, um, I, I can by what you say. I, I it's obvious that you're developing the Dhamma. Uh, as it's intended. Uh, and it's important to put emphasis on the fact that the Buddha taught one meditation method called jhana and nothing else. And the reason why I'm saying that now is I had a conversation with someone who follows us along um, yesterday and they're interested in coming on the retreat, but they had some questions. And one of the questions that they had was that they do not practice jhana meditation. They do something something else. And I don't, I don't need to describe what that is. Um, but it, you know, it's a current modern method, and uh, we had a very pleasant conversation, and it ended pleasantly. But I, I advised the person that um, unless they were really willing to do jhana meditation, there's really no reason to come on retreat or, or practice with us. And I'm not trying to exclude them, but you can't develop the Buddha's Dhamma without, without a concentration practice, and it's just that way because they, you need concentration to recognize the ongoing eye-making, the, the ongoing enchantment with our own views, uh, our own wrong views. So, so significant. So thank you, Adam. Good morning, Brett. Are you in Frenchtown or Woodstock? I can't tell. I'm in Frenchtown. Okay. Go to Woodstock later. <laughs> oh, nice. Uh, 
How's everybody? Uh, nice to be here. Um, uh, yeah, it was a good, it was relevant. I guess I, what I got out of it was that um, looking at, you know, uh, looking at different real estate deals and then following through and, uh, you know, different things like that to, to come up for me. And then, um, you know, uh, a next door neighbor is bidding on the same thing I'm bidding on and she's kind of talking crap to me and I'm just like, oh, and, uh, you know, anyway, it's, it's, it's just funny that, uh, you know, you're just getting hit from all these different angles and to be able to just hang in there and, 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 you know, accept it and be with it. And I think, uh, I was walking this morning and I was like, yeah, yeah, this is, you know, and then I had something else happen and I'm just like, oh, what are you going to do? And so I I guess years ago, uh, I probably would have, um, not accepted that, taking it all personally, and hung on to those horrible feelings for a long time. And now I kind of just say, "All right, there'll be another one. It's not my. This is you know, this is not for me. Uh, whatever I'm losing is is okay, and uh, and move on um, to the best of my abilities." So it just solidified what I, you know, what is coming up, and what I have to, you know, continue to work on. So yeah. Good to be here. Thank you for your teaching. Thank you, Brett. As as we um, recognize and abandon our own fabrications, it makes it much easier when other people are acting out through their own fabrications to recognize it and, and not be affected by it and you know understand. And that that's really true compassion. You know, we first have to understand the roots of our own delusion before we and let that go before we can actually practice true compassion with others or else we're just reacting to other people's fabrication and they described that beautifully thank you brett good morning jen hi john hi everybody um as far as the the fire discourse um, you know i just think it's so brilliant how the and i the how the buddha points out how the human mind works, how we have these senses that are designed to allow us to see what's happening in our environment um, and then points out that that the external phenomena that's occurring once it comes through the senses and into the mind, the internal experience of that phenomena is not necessarily the same as what is actually occurring externally if we're ignorant or if we're in ignorance. And sort of that, that's something that you don't need to be in the stream to 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 understand, yep. and um, so it's it's you can see why when it's explained so eloquently, it's going to lead to awakening in individuals. Yep. Um, it's also helpful just to remember it for me because then I can just be skeptical about what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling and, and just remember that it's yeah. not me, not mine and probably not accurate. Yeah. Um, and then as far as going through the course again, you know, this time has been had its ups and downs within the Sangha. Um, some change. There's been new teachers and sometimes as part of the plan and sometimes not part of the plan and um, just kind of riding that wave of impermanence with all of you has been really meaningful for me. Mm. Um, The course feels like a kind of like an old friend and, and just, just the belief of knowing that, no matter what goes on within the Sangha, 
the Dhamma and the Sangha will change, but they will stay the same. Well, they will yeah. always be available to us. Those Four Noble Truths, you know, aren't going anywhere. And that's really comforting. Yeah. And everyone here, um, everyone not here that contributed to that, you know, I'm, I'm very, very grateful for. Well said, Jen. I, I am as well. I'm very grateful to all of you. Um, you know, the, 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 the initial truth of happiness was just uh, quite a few years ago, maybe eight or nine years ago, I was asked to develop a program for some staff, um, but mostly um, the general population at Hunter and Medical Center. Um, and so I, I had almost finished becoming Buddha but I, I wrote The Truth of Happiness and published it first in a, in a much shorter version to teach some classes there at the medical center. Um, and that was the genesis of the book. And Ram mentioned a few revisions. And, and so there was, um, I expanded it. I um, improved upon it, I think. And my own, and I hope this doesn't sound self-aggrandizing, but my appreciation of the book um, has grown along with a lot of you and it's it's really to see to see how well it works in other people but also you know i know i'm no hemingway people that have read my work <laughs> wouldn't argue with that uh but i don't intend to be i i what i hope to do is to present the buddhist teachings in as authentic and effective way as i can and so the book is effective not because i'm the next hemingway the book is effective because these are the teachings of the Buddha from 2,600 years ago. And I've done my best not to alter them or uh, adulterate them in any way uh, with magic and mysticism. And, and it seems to work, doesn't it? You know, when you, when you strip out all the, the um, embellishments that have been added since the Buddha passed, there's still an, a, a useful and effective Dhamma that, that literally and effectively and authentically transforms lives uh, in a very gentle way so um it, again i i appreciate it more the book uh more today than i ever have um so <laughs> thank you all uh are there any other questions or comments before before we finish uh Karen. yes actually I, I would like to just check in thank you please um i just want to say thank you to all of you because i I do feel like I've been on sea legs in the sangha for a couple of years now. <laughs> and I sort of pop in and pop out and pop in and pop out. But you're always, always there and so supportive. And it means so much to me. Um, and, and John, if you don't mind, I did give my copy of your book to my brother, who I'm happy to say is reading it. Uh, so thank you. you please send me a book and I'll send you a chat. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you a book. Keep the check to yourself, please. <laughs> thank you everybody Th thank you Karen uh, thank you for all your help always with the retreats Karen is the director of Juan Dharma Center and she's the one that's responsible for making them easy for me and pleasurable for all of us so thank you Karen uh, I will send out uh, a, a separate email on the retreat probably Monday um, but the, the reservations are open and there's a link in the current uh, newsletter too so uh, if you decided to go, please sign up as soon as you can. Uh, it helps my logistics uh, greatly. Um, but of course, you could you know you could sign up the day before as long as there's room. We are a little bit limited on space. I think I figured we have sixteen or seventeen beds um, in in two buildings, um, maybe one or two more. Uh, but so again, the, the sooner you sign up, the better. Um, we will be in uh, housed individually in the rooms, even the double rooms. Uh, the ministers are um, being very cautious uh, for our own safety. Um, that may change, and if it does, I'll, I'll, I'll notify you all. But as of right now, we'll all be housed individually, uh, except those that, that currently cohabitate, uh, and uh, they, they can share a double room. I think initially, um, I know Michael and Julie are going. Uh, I'm going to put, those, uh, put them in a quad room and save the double room for singles uh, rather than put a single in the quad room. I hope that makes sense. Um, there was one other announcement I can't think. Uh, and look in tomorrow's email uh, about what Tuesday's class. I might do the the, uh, the, the, the teachings to King Pasanati on Tuesday and start the Vipassana class 
on Saturday, or we might start the Vipassana class on Tuesday, but we're going to get to it very quickly. We'll finish with, uh, with the Buddha's words on metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. As soon as I can find it. And I, I always want to say every now and then that the, uh, there is a, a Sangha in London. Um, oh, I can't think of the name of it now. Amaravati Sangha are the translators of this particular version of Metta. And, you know, I say it every class. I used to use a, a version that I kind of made up myself, um, which Lorna always said she liked it better. But I, this, this is the words of the Buddha. And it really does get to the heart of the matter, too, like all of the suttas. So just take a moment to become mindful of your breath. Let that unite your mind and your body. And the Buddha's words on Metta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing, in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class this morning. Peace. Thank you, John. Thank you, everyone. See you all soon. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Thank you, John. Thank you, Bye, Sounds a little bit like the end of the Waltons, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. <laughs>